because memorabilia of different teams are displayed on other people. And so last week was the first week me and David got to get into our bet concerning our favorite teams, mine the Falcons, his his is the Lions. And I lost. Therefore, I am displaying this. Now, just something for you guys to know, for everybody who is here, if you have a favorite team, I only do this with favorite teams. We do not do this with just, hey, I want to see the pastor lose. That's not how this works, okay? But if you have a favorite team, and your team is playing my favorite team in either college or pro, I will make a jersey bet with you. And if by some chance, by some miracle or act of God like happened last week, your team beats my team... I will wear your merchandise right here the Sunday afterwards. It's a one sign. You forget it, all bets are off, okay? And people have forgotten it before. However, if you lose, you get to display my wonderful team's colors. And we've had people who have not bet me because they were scared of that prospect, okay? So... That's a church-wide thing. If that's you and you're like, I will do that, you got to tell me who your favorite team is and when we're playing one another, and it's on. But expect trash talking too. So that's the way that that works, okay? But that's for everybody who's there. Unfortunately, this is what you get to look at today. No matter how you feel about the Lions today, this is what you get to look at, all right? So that being said... First of all, we are so glad that you are here. If you're here for the first time, uh, we're glad that you have joined us here at Heights Christian Church, and we do things a little bit differently here, other than just wearing, you know, memorabilia for NFL teams here. Um, we, uh, we go through the Bible every five years, and what we're doing right now and going through the Word of God, we do this as a congregation together, and so six days a week... We read the Word of God together, and you can get a schedule of our reading. We have our readings scheduled out for the entire year, and there's a schedule of that reading at the information desk, and you can go through that and just use that schedule to read what we're reading together as a congregation, or you can go online, and we have a YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash Heights Christian Church, and you can subscribe to the channel, click the bell for notifications, and we do a devotional based upon our reading. We do the entire reading of the scripture, and we do a devotional based upon that, because like I said, some of these harder passages of scripture, more dry passages, sometimes it's hard to get something out of it. We want to make sure that you guys have something that you can grab onto and bring with you during the day, and so either one of those ways, we do that. And then on Sundays, like today, we take either a part or the whole of the scripture that we've been reading for the week, and that's where our sermon comes from, to get a deeper dive into some of the things that we've been reading. And so that's what we've been doing, and we're in the book of Numbers right now. We're actually finishing it up this week. How many of you got it done this week? Woohoo! Look at that. You know, and, and Numbers was very technical because it was going through the preparation period of the people of Israel as they were about to step into the promised land. And so a lot of this week's um, readings had to do with what they were going to do when they got into the promised land. Here's how you're going to break up the land. Here are the cities for the Levites. Here are the promises that we're going to give for families who don't have men but only have girls. So these were all kind of technical aspects of things that they were going to do when they stepped into the promised land, except for one chapter. And that's the chapter we're going to focus on. I t- gave you guys a, uh, a preview a couple weeks ago, and I said, you know, we're going to be coming back to this idea of Balaam. You guys remember me saying that a few weeks back? Three of you. Great. That's awesome. All right. So, so we're going to look at Balaam in a sermon that's titled, Not All Prophets Are of God. The, the reason why this is so important is because Balaam kind of gets a mixed review even among Christians who don't know the scriptures very well. And we want to walk through these scriptures to help us understand. I remember looking in children's books because in, in the account with Balaam, we have the talking donkey, right? And, and of course, today, as adults, many atheists will point to that and say, hey, this is a problem. I can't believe in a talking donkey. And I can't believe in a talking snake when they go back to Genesis. And these are the reasons why I don't have um, faith in God. But as children, we're taught something a little bit different concerning these very accounts. If you go to a children's uh, Bible, it'll oftentimes go through the account of Balaam almost in a favorable light. 
that we look at Balaam as somebody who is to be revered. Maybe a little bit off course, if you will. Kind of like Jonah. Jonah who wanted to run away from God and got spit back up on dry land. Balaam's almost taught in that way in your children's Bibles and the like. As a matter of fact, when we read the passages of where Balaam is introduced, we almost kind of get that same vibe. And I want to walk through some of that because one of the things that Scripture is clear about is that Balaam is not a prophet of God. Balaam is a false prophet. From the moment that he's introduced until the moment that he is no longer there. So we're going to go back a few chapters of, uh, go back a couple weeks to the introduction of Balaam before we get into chapter 31 together because I want to give a background of this introduction and the confusing way in which it seems like Balaam is portrayed, even though the Word of God is very, very clear about where he stands from the beginning. We're going to take a look at that. We're going to understand how easy it is for you and I to step into false voices that seem to sound like God in our culture. So Numbers chapter 22, we're going to read the first 20 verses together. Says then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the river, in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They covered the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those that you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. And when they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes stayed with them. And God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. And then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. And they came to Balaam and said, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now, stay here tonight as the elders, uh, as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night, God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Kind of read this, and you kind of get this feeling that, Sounds like Balaam's kind of a good guy, right? He can only do what what God wants him to do. As a matter of fact, Balaam even says right there toward the end at verse 18, he says, I can't do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Brings a little bit of confusion into it, doesn't it? Because it seems like he's identifying himself as the worshiper of the one true God. More than that, when we start to look at the accounts in chapters 23 and 24 as, as it's brought off after he's gone off with the donkey and the angel of the Lord's trying to kill him and all that stuff. And he gets everything straight and he says, go and do what I tell you to do. And Balaam says, yes, sir. And so he goes the first time and he pronounces a blessing for the Lord. And Balak says, you pronounced a blessing over the people I wanted you to curse. He says, well, let's go over here and see if God will allow you to curse him here. So he goes to this other place and he looks at him and he, and he blesses them again because he goes and talks to the Lord. 
And then it says the third time that the Spirit of God came. He doesn't even go and talk to the Lord first. It says the Spirit of God came upon him and that he went out and he blessed the people of Israel the third time. He said, these three times you've blessed them. It's like I told you I couldn't do anything more than what the Lord my God said. It becomes kind of a confusing passage when you look at that in its totality, doesn't it? Because it seems like there's approval that's given to this person who I'm telling you right now is a false prophet. And it was there from the very beginning. Let's go back to the verse 7 of 22 and notice the elders of Moab and Midian left taking with them the fee for divination. See, according to the law that had been given by Moses, they were not supposed to practice divination. Divination was expressly forbidden for the people of Israel because they were not to try to conjure favor for the gods in which they serve like the nations around them. That's what Balaam was doing. Which, of course, makes us go like, wait a second, but then why did God answer him? It's kind of weird, right? He, he did this divination thing and God answered him and it was definitely the Lord who spoke to him and told him to bless the people of Israel. So, can't God use divination? Right? Isn't that the question that comes to our head? Uh, Vodi Bakken put it this way. I, I like the way that he put it. That just because God can work in any situation doesn't mean that he prescribes it. Said so people all the time come to God in various crazy ways because God has reached out into their situation at that moment in time, which not, may not have been righteous or prescribed at all, and yet plucked them from that and saved them. How many people have we heard testimonies from who have been in the middle of drug addiction and crack houses and a terrible high and they've, you're like, God, if you could just get me out of this. And God in his grace and his mercy pulls them out of that situation. Would that then prescribe us to go to drug addicted houses so that we might meet God? You see where that type of thinking goes? Of course not. And yet, this is what's happening right here. It's through divination God is making himself known to these pagan nations that they may know that he is God and all these others are not. Through his grace and his mercy. But lest we think that Balaam is some sort of good guy, let's take a look at Numbers chapter 31 to see the depths in which Balaam truly hated God. Let's take a look at this. Number 31, we're going to read the first 18 verses. The Lord said to Moses, take the vengeance, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. And after that, you'll be gathered to your people. It's the last battle Moses would be a part of before he is gathered to his people. So Moses said to the people, arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites to carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So 12,000 men armed for battle, a thousand from each tribe were supplied from the clans of Israel. And Moses sent them into battle. A thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, who took with him the articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. And they fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Recham, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and the children and took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. And they burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled as well as all their camps. They took all the plunder and the spoils, including the people and animals, and they brought the captives, the spoils, the plunder to Moses and Eleazar, the, the priests, and the Israelite assembly at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Moses, Eleazar, the priests, and all the leaders of the community went to to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who returned from the battle. Have you allowed all the women to live, he asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord and what happened at Peor. 
so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who slept with a man, but save for yourself every girl who's never slept with a man. And it goes on from there and talks about how to divide up the plunder from all the people. And there's obviously sensitivities when we start looking at Israel exacting the type of vengeance God has on the people, the judgment that was supposed to come, the the talking about why can God use the Israelites to bring this punishment upon these people? And that's definitely a question for another time. We'll definitely have many scriptures that will have us diving back into that problem. That's not the one we're going to talk about today, but we're not ignoring it. What we're looking at here is Balaam was the one who gave the advice for what happened at Peor. You know when that happened? It was chapter 25. It was immediately after chapter 24. Chapter 24 are all the blessings that that we see Balaam giving to the people of Israel. And in chapter 25, let's rehearse this real quick and see exactly what happened together. So if we look in chapter 25... I'm going to read the first nine verses of this chapter. It says this. And while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to sacrifices with, to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people and kill them, expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. And he drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. And then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. This was not a small thing before the eyes of God. Balaam, immediately after blessing all the people of Israel by the strong hand of the Lord who would not allow him to do anything else, immediately then makes another plan so that the people of Israel themselves would be cursed by God, by worshiping other gods. By falling for foreign women. And the sexual practices of worship that was happening in the Midianite tribe and clans around Israel. And so what we see is this fornication that happens and it takes over a great portion of the people of Israel. They're sucked in by it. In so much that you start seeing a brazenness taking place where while they are weeping in front of the tent of meeting, you have a man who takes a Midianite woman to go have sexual relations in worship to this false god brought right in front of them. And it takes Phineas to take a strong stand in killing both that man and that woman before the Lord to stop this plague that was inflicting all of Israel because of their disobedience to God. 24,000 people died. That's not a small thing. Balaam is not the hero of the story. Balaam is the villain. He's the false prophet who spread lies. And though he was coerced by God to make a blessing that he might be known, he never, ever bowed his knee before God. So no matter what he says, that this is the Lord my God, it wasn't. And no place in the scripture looks upon Balaam in a favorable manner. We can look in Second Peter chapter 2 to see how he's looked upon. 
So 2 Peter chapter 2, if we read the first three verses to get context about what this passage is about, it says, but there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they've made up. Their condemnation has been long hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. And then he goes on and talks about what's going to happen. God's judgment is concerned. In verse 13 through the end of the chapter, it says this. They will be paid back with harm for the harm that they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men, talking about people like Balaam, are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever's mastered him. And if they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to know the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Um, Not a very favorable recollection of who Balaam really was, was it? And yet we have this confusion in our culture today because, guess what? We're still surrounded by false prophets and false teachers, aren't we? I would dare say more so now than ever because everything's just going crazy, right? We, we see it all the time. I say it all the time. It's really hard to say, okay, we want to talk about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to protect the flock at the same time. And so these messages seem like sometimes they're unweighted. I want to make sure that they're both there. I want to talk to you about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, but I've got to warn you about these things that are out there that threaten to trip you up. And this is one of them. All these false teachers that are out there. And there are three things I think that we need to be careful of in knowing whether or not we're falling for false teaching. It abounds in this place right now. And I mean in America, in the world right now. With the information that's out on the internet, how can we tell what is true, what is good, what is righteous? We need to find out how are we falling for something else and how do we prevent ourselves from going down that path? Well, I want to give you kind of three warning signs. They're very prevalent in our culture today. If you want to know if people are are falling down that path or if you're wanting to know whether or not you might succumb to this path. These are three warning signs. The first one is this. They speak, they seek experience over truth. Experienced thrill seekers abound in our culture today. Go to YouTube and you can see all types of videos that you're like, man, that would be so cool if I could just do that. Or maybe you're looking at it like, there's no way I would ever do that, right? But all of those things that we see of these thrill seekers, whether they're diving out of airplanes or they're doing base climbing without a rope, and you're like, they're 17,000 feet up, and they're like, I'm just hanging on by my, by my fingernails, and it's the greatest sensation ever. Yeah, until you let go, right? We have these thrill seekers, but we have thrill seekers as well in our Christian communities. 
It's a matter of fact, that's one of the things that we look at that God talks about concerning those who would be false prophets. If we look at Matthew chapter 7, he addresses this very specifically. So in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about, you know, false teachers, false prophets that are going to come up. Starting in verse 15, it says this, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. That means they look like Christians, just like Balaam, the Lord my God, right? He's using the right language. He sounds like one of us. They come to you in sheep's clothing. I I believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm all with you. One of the things I find very interesting, just a little side note real quick, I, I go, go do a lot of weddings, and it's so funny to me, sometimes going to weddings can be interesting. Because you go to weddings, and, and people will see, and I, I share the gospel in the weddings, I, I share, you know, what Jesus has done in, in the midst of marriage, and how wonderful that is, and afterwards people come up, because they're trying to be nice and complimentary, but then there are some who are trying to be impressive, and they... Man, I just, I loved your sermon. That, that was awesome. I remember recently having one of those experiences. I, I loved this wedding. That, that was great. I love the fact that you went through all of this. And I just want to say, I'm a Christian too. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. You're a Christian as well. It's like, yeah. And, you know, I searched different denominations and, and I finally landed on the Latter-day Saints. I'm like, oh, tried so hard to tell me that they were a Christian and then they told me that they weren't a Christian, right? They used the language. They were happy about me using the Bible, but we, we, that's a different gospel. It's not the same. And if you come from a Mormon background, I, I want to have that conversation with you, show you how those things are different, but it's not the same gospel. It's not the same Jesus, even though it may sound like the same language. Same thing here. So watch out for false prophets. Back to verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Did you notice that the false prophets even think they're right with the Lord. Do you notice that the false prophets say, Lord, Lord, look at what we did in your name. Did we not do many miracles in your name and prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Notice every one of those things are experiential. Every one of them. Every one of those things are based upon spectacle. Didn't we do these great things for you that everybody can attest that we did these things for you? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. And then he gives the prescription afterwards. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice He's like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the winds came and the rains blew and the house stood strong. But he who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice. Oh, the destruction's great. 
if you are looking for an experience to get close to God, you might be falling for a false gospel. How many of you, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't want to dis experience. Jesus gave plenty of experiences to his disciples. They got to see miracles. They got to see the transfiguration that burned in Peter's mind that he writes about it in his epistles as well. There are amazing things that happen that verify the truthfulness of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. But do you know how how Peter died? According to church tradition, he died upside down crucified because he didn't see himself as being worthy of being crucified in the same manner as Jesus because he denied him three times. Is that somebody seeking out an experience? Oh, I, as a matter of fact, Jesus said, you know, when you get older, people are going to take you. When you were younger, you got to go where you wanted to. This is my paraphrase at the end of John's gospel. But when you're older, people are going to take you to a place that you don't want to go. This is how he was going to glorify God through his death. You and I, if we simply look to experience, means we're just looking for a thrill And that's supposed to mean that God is here. Too many of us have equated feeling with the Holy Spirit. That the idea, if I feel a certain way, then that is equated to a Holy Holy Spirit experience. So I go to a conference, or I go to camp, or I hear this amazing speaker. Every time I hear this person speak, I mean, it just gives me chills. How many of you have heard? How many of you felt that way before? Come on, just be honest, I have right? And if that's our only barometer, we are ripe for falling for false teaching. We are ripe for falling into that which is not gospel-centered or Jesus-centered, even if it's under the guise of Jesus' name. It's why you and I, when you go talk to Mormons, guess what they tell you? Read the Book of Mormon and see on the inside how you feel. And if you get this burning in your bosom to verify the truthfulness of it, is that how you verify truth in any other realm of your life? You know, I was just thinking, you know, we were going we were gonna to sign this multi-million dollar debt And the reason I did it is because I had this feeling on the inside that I should sign it. We don't walk into life doing those types of things. Jesus isn't in that same boat. So he says, I'm going to give you how you can tell if they're my followers, that they're listening to me, if they follow the words that I say. If I give commands and they follow me, these are the ones who love me. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. He who does not love me does not obey my commands. How much of that is about feeling? They didn't ask how we felt about his commands. Seriously. And how many of us have made the mistake of saying, well, I didn't feel God wanted me to do this? As if we don't have instruction for which we can go back and see what God wanted us to do. We have to be careful not to replace experience with the truth. Truth has to guide our experiences. Matter of fact, that's exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians as the people are struggling, even with the gifts of the Spirit, talking about speaking in tongues. How can people say the amen to you if they don't understand what you're saying? You might be praising God well enough, but nobody understands, so nobody is edified. Why is that? Because there is a specific amount of, of understanding who Jesus is and what he said and what he's taught that we're to compare with as we say amen to certain things. That's why the Berean believers in Acts chapter 17 are looked upon with favor because they didn't just take Paul at his word when he shared about Jesus. They went back to the scriptures to see that he was right. You see, there was a ground base for them to be able to say yeah, this does reveal Jesus. And it's based in truth, not solely in experience. Not to say that we shouldn't have experiences, but we should be able to say the amen to our experiences because we know Jesus. So that's the first thing. Are we experience, you know, junkies, right? Got to make sure that we're not experienced junkies. Second thing, that we have to watch out for. 
that might make us susceptible to it? Have we softened our language? Have we moved away from specifics for the purpose of not offending somebody? For example, maybe you use phrases like this, or I've, these are phrases I've seen online from people that I, I know. It's better to do good things than to have than to believe right things. Yeah. It's better to do good things than to have to believe all the right things. A lot who are in the progressive Christianity, which is neither progressive nor Christian, a lot of those in the deconstruction movement will use phrases like this. Because for them, the biggest sin that you can have is certainty about what God has said. So they use phrases like this, that, well, I'd rather just do good things than believe right things. There's a problem with that statement. Can anybody guess what that problem is? Bueller? <laughs> how, do, how do we do right things? Jesus, when approached by the rich young ruler, was told this, right? He goes, a good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus answers him with the question, why do, you, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. In other words, it was a test, right? Do you recognize me as God? Do you recognize me as having the authority to proclaim that which is good and that which is evil? See, there has to be a basis for our understanding of what good and evil is, and that comes by a righteous understanding of God and his commands for us, right? So I can't just believe, you know, I can't just suspend the belief in right things to do good things because I have to know the right things in order to do the right the good things, right? I have to know the right things in order to do the good things. And if I don't know those things, then we could be walking into a place where we're calling evil good and good evil. That's what Isaiah accuses the people of Israel of. That they've gone to a place in their society where they have twisted all of God's word around to say the exact opposite of what God has plainly and clearly said. So today in our modern day sensitivities, we avoid hard subjects because we would rather people feel good about themselves and where they're at than be able to say, yeah, that's not right. And if you find yourself avoiding those subjects softening that language, turning around and saying the sins of today are not really sins, or I can understand why somebody would do that, you might be susceptible toward falling into the teachings of a false prophet or a false gospel. Just as the truth. And we have a lot of that today, right? We have a lot of issues today that society loves. We're inundated with it all the time. And man, don't you get tired? Don't you just want to say, not today? <laughs> just please? I just, yeah, whatever. Just, just leave me alone. <laughs> How many of you are like that? Come on, seriously. You hear it. You're surrounded with it. You're, you're tired of it. You don't, want it. you don't want to say that it's wrong because it's just another fight you're going to get into with somebody. And yet, you and I, we are called to stand for Christ. We're called to stand for righteousness. We're called not just to do good things, but the believing of right things is essential for us to do those good things. And therefore, we've got to be specific on what those good things are and what those bad things are that separate us from God, whether it has to do with sexuality or drugs or violence or whatever it is. We don't like the contention, but... We're called to step inside of it. The third thing, which is connected with the second one. The second one is a softening of language, but the third thing is is a little bit different. It's the idea that it's more important to be liked and accepted by the world than set apart for God. The idea of conflict over and over again gets harsh after a while. I'm just going to be honest with you. All of us who share the gospel of, of freedom in Christ are going to have to be able to call out what sin 
actually is. People have to come to the end of themselves. Nobody likes to be called a sinner. Christians don't like to be called sinners, though we are. We don't like being told that our actions are unrighteous or ungodly or unholy. Man, I just want to be liked by everybody else. And I understand that. The idea of being accepted by the people around you, all of us want that. I want that. You want that. It's a desire that God has placed in our hearts because he wants it first and foremost fulfilled in him because of what he's done for us. Because he sent his son to die on the cross for you and me to give us eternal life and say, no other relationship should matter this much. And yet it does. Right? It's, it's why we hedge on sharing the gospel with those that we know that if we start sharing the truth of the, what Jesus has done for them and we start calling out sin for what it is and even in the most loving way, we hesitate, don't we? You know, I said something a couple weeks ago that I want to clarify because I still stand by what I said, but I understand the, the, where this, this clarification is needed. I said, you know what? It's not hard for us to be able to identify and call out what sin is, and I named specific examples. It's not hard. God's defined it in his word. The definition is not hard for us to do. To live it out, that's a little bit different, right? Because the pressure all around us to want to be conformed and liked by the world around us, nobody wants to be hated by the people who are around you. As the closer they are, the harder it is for us to do that. The people who are falling away from Christ right now are oftentimes doing so because they have family members involved in sins that we just don't want to confront and talk about because it helps us to, it has us to make a choice between God and them, at least in our minds. And if we choose God over them, it's just going to be conflict or cut off or whatnot. And so it becomes hard and becomes easy for us to be able to say, well, maybe I just won't mention this. Maybe I can just tell them that I love them by showing them my love and I never have to mention what they are doing is wrong. I can just love them with the love of Jesus and show the love of Christ and all these things, but I never have to confront them with their sin. And yet repentance is a necessary action for every single person who would come to know Jesus Christ. It's not just about Jesus doing all of this for us and us having no change of mind toward those things that put Jesus on the cross. But the only way we can get there is if we're confronted with that sin. It's that acceptance that we want from the world around us to be liked. God doesn't speak of that very highly in the scriptures. You know, so let's take a look. First John chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Isn't that the same thing that we're hearing from the false prophet back in Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Are these not the same types of words that we're hearing right there, except applied to the idea of the love of the world around us? The boasting of what we have and what we do. The reputations that we have. The good relationships, and we just, we just don't want to burn those to the ground. And I totally understand that. But guess what? God calls you and I, as believers in Christ, to regard him above everybody else. He who does not love his son, his daughter, his mother, his father. If you, if you don't love me more than them, according to Jesus, you're not worthy of me. It's a pretty high calling. And what he's saying right there is he wants his voice to be greater than the voices of everybody else around us. And his voice is found in the word. 
Going back to the word of God, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Man, it's going to be different if we start doing that. But by saturating ourselves with the knowledge of the word of God, we become better in discerning those things that are not of his will. Those things that we shouldn't be involved with in our lives. We can discern beyond that. Let me give you a practical example. So a couple years ago, went to the men's conference. It was a good men's conference overall. Lots of great things that were said, except for the final session. Because the final session had somebody who was there who did not preach a biblical message. But he was amazingly um, enthusiastic. And he can definitely stir emotionally the crowd that was there to the point where you walk out and everybody's like, that was great, that was awesome, that was it. And it's not that he didn't say, it wasn't saying that everything that he said was heresy. But there was enough false teaching that was there that I sat down, I took notes, I wrote down, this isn't true, this isn't true, this isn't right. This was fine, this was good, this isn't true, this isn't scriptural. Walking out of that place, I had to tell the gentlemen, those of you who were at the men's conference, you'll remember because I did this as we walked to the van. I can tell you exactly where we were when this happened. You know why? Because it wasn't an easy thing to do. Everybody's there hoping to be encouraged in the Lord, walking to be stronger men in Christ. And I'm walking down there saying, I got to say something because some of these guys are going like, that was amazing. That was, it was not amazing because it went against what the word of God said. It was emotionalism prepackaged with Jesus' words. And if we don't have a discerning spirit, we walk the road toward that false teaching that leads us away. And so as we walked, I kind of shared, hey guys, this wasn't good. He didn't say everything bad and everything wrong. These were the things that he said was good. Here are the things that were not biblical. And you guys need to be aware of it. Do you and I evaluate our teachings in that way? Even mine. Even what I'm bringing you today. Because if we don't, we run the risk of falling into the teachings of false leaders who will only bring destruction to our lives. I have no idea what happened between chapters 24 and 25. I have no idea if word reached the people of Israel that there was a prophet who spoke good things about Israel to the people of Moab and the people of Midian that made it a little bit easier for the Midianite women to come in and say, hey, Balaam sent us. And he heard that you guys were blessed and we're here on, on that. Oh, they're, they're blessed. And they were sent by Balaam who's already blessed us. And God has, has already said all these great things. Scripture doesn't say which way it was. However, Moses says, guess what? I know his name and I know his influence. So it was known somewhere along the way. And the people of Israel listened to the advice of Balaam over the advice of God. And it cost them 24,000 people. You and I need to be very careful about who we're listening to, what we're reading, what music is on our iPods. You know what? I, I hate to say this. I'm admitting in front of you. I listen to less and less Christian music because so many Christian artists have been falling away. Not because I don't like Christian music. When I find a good Christian artist, they stay with me. But in the last year, I can tell you a dozen artists, I'm like, I can't listen to them anymore. I know where they've gone theologically. I know that they're no longer walking with God. They're no longer serving God. I would rather listen to a secular artist who has stumbled on Christian truth, knowing that he's not Christian so I don't fall into error, than listen to somebody who portrays himself as a Christian and is going to lead people astray. You and I need to be aware of these three things. So when we come, 
weekly here or go to a conference, which is not a bad thing. I'm not trying to say don't go to conferences. I'm not trying to say don't do some of these good things, but we can't just do them mind, you know, saying they're watching out for me. They may not be. We're supposed to be evaluating things with the word of God in our hands and in our head so that emotionalism doesn't drag us away into false teaching so that we don't begin to soften our message just because we're worried about what somebody else is going to say. Keep things ambiguous instead of clear like God wants them to be so we can drive them to Christ and the cross. To care more about what they think than what God thinks. These are the things we struggle with on a daily basis as believers in Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are in all of that. Maybe you've fallen into some of that. But I implore you, start evaluating things biblically. Know the word of God better. Start going back over the lyrics that you're, you're listening to on the music. Start looking at the artists and seeing their lifestyle so that you can say the amen to that which is right and you can say no thank you to those things that are wrong. And build our house on the rock as Jesus has told us to. Do you stand with me? really sad I gave Madeline the unenviable task today like we're going to close the service I have no idea where to lead you today I didn't lie I told you the truth you and my focus should be that on Christ Jesus renewing our minds in him recognizing who he is what he's done for us uncompromisingly in the truth My prayer for you and myself is that we don't fall down this road that so easily tangles up many of us as believers in Christ. Emotionalism. Trying to replace that with with the idea that, that our emotions are the Holy Spirit. They're not. Softening our language. Making sure that we're clear concerning who Jesus is. What right and wrong is. Understanding that we need to love Jesus more than we love this world. Even the closest ones to us. Not because we're wanting to be rude or mean, but we want to lead them to life. And that life means they have to be confronted with themselves. Just like we did when we came to Christ. That's my prayer for you. If you have any prayer needs, we're going to have our elders up front praying for for you to pray for. Pray with, whatever. You know what I'm talking about? If you think you're falling into one of these three areas, my prayer for you is that you come. Be prayed for. Be encouraged in the Lord. We're standing with you. God, thank you so much for this time that we've had together. We need to recognize the false teachings that are around us. It's so prevalent. And I just pray in the name of Jesus, you'll help us to do so. God, that we would do so in such a way that we would glorify and magnify the Jesus who is So help us know your word. Help us know what Jesus has done for us. Help us not be caught up in sensationalism, Lord, but to be grounded in truth and the knowledge of your word and the security of your son's sacrifice. We thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.